0: All right, thanks a lot for joining us here today. I'm very, very excited because I've got Jared Tendler here with me today who uh, is someone I've admired for a long time. Uh, in fact, I have wanted to interview Jared simply because he's had a big per- impact on my game personally. Uh, I know that uh, I used to play baseball at a pretty serious level on both the high school and collegiate level. He was actually a pitcher and one of the things that I struggled with the most back in the day was sort of getting in my own head uh, and trying to keep an emotional balance on the field. And I think that's something that attracted me to poker and something that held me back for a long time uh, with poker was you know, tilting too much, getting angry, uh, and really just not understanding my emotions. And I never felt like uh, the mental game trainers that were out there really spoke to me until I read... Jared's book, which is The Mental Game of Poker. He's got two volumes now, Mental Game of Poker 1 and 2 that, you know, since they came out have basically become the Bible of how to fix your mental game problems and and forge a solid base uh, for succeeding at the mental game in poker. And, uh, you know, whenever my students come to me and they ask me uh, how they should fix their mental game problems and what they should read, all I say is read Jared's, Jared's books nobody else's and, and you'll be good to go. Jared's had, <laughs> uh, clients on over 40 different client, uh, 40 different countries. Uh, he's, um, pretty much just the man all around. I don't know if that's, if that suffices Jared, but if you want to take a moment and say hello and explain anything that I missed, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. Thanks John. I appreciate that, uh, that intro man. And, uh, you know, we were similar in that we were both athletes with, with mental issues. So, um, yeah, I mean I, I'm I've got clients in forty countries, uh worked with over three hundred and fifty poker players individually and you know, it's it's been a, a, a wild ride over the last six years because I essentially started as a as a golf uh started in golf working with uh with professionals and, and avid amateurs um and was a golfer with uh with mental issues back in uh actually looking like it was like seventeen years ago now. It's crazy how old I'm now. Um <laughs> And uh, struggling for answers and, and kind of eventually kind of figured out a, a a program of my own, did it with golfers, randomly met a poker player on the golf course, uh, Dusty Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And, and then that was like eight years ago now. I've been kind of working pretty exclusively with poker players.
0: That's very impressive. And I will say that a trend that I've noticed personally just from coaching a lot and being around poker is that... It seems that there's, you know, it's it's a dime a dozen the guys that can break down a hand on a forum and tell you kind of what the most plus EV play is on every, on any given hand, but the guys that really have a strong mental foundation who are able to execute high-level strategy uh, when everything is on the line are few and far between. And that's, you know, a lot of times when I read, when I read forums, I, I know a lot of the guys in real, real life, and a lot of the guys that sound the smartest on the forums are actually the guys that aren't doing very well. And I think mm. it, the difference maker really is um, your ability to harness the stuff that you talk about in your books. So... Again, really appreciate somebody like you being able to uh, articulate the stuff that really matters.
1: Thanks, Ben. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's uh it, it it takes a lot of work to make things simple, and uh I love the challenge of it, and that's that's kind of what drives me.
0: Absolutely. So, you've been around the block like you said. in from your experience, I mean, how do you define uh what mental game success is or like or or someone who's successful at the mental game, like how would you describe that?
1: It's a good question. Um it's always relative. I mean, you know, somebody as a, just like technically speaking, if they're playing, you know, micro stakes, you know, being successful might be, you know, winning a hundred buy-ins for the year. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's always relative to that person. So, you know, mental game success. Um, I think the, the thing that people are, would be, um, would be striving for is, is a consistent work ethic with regards to, uh, improving tilt control, mm-hmm. uh, understanding anxiety, uh, improving decision making, uh, trying to play in the zone consistently, What whatever are the major issues slash the major things that can enhance their performance, whether it be improved decision making, focus, uh, mental endurance, things like that, uh, which is mostly covered in the second book. Um, that to me, is somebody who is successful. Somebody who is working consistently on their mental game doesn't become complacent uh, and doesn't think that they've sort of arrived mentally. because the reality is you're always going to have weaknesses mentally, just as like you're you're always going to have uh, weaknesses technically. So, you know in the end, obviously, you want to become the person who is, sort of unflappable. You know, there, there, there may be some frustrations, but those frustrations are always managed. Uh, there may be some distractions, but they're always fairly minimal. Uh, and for the most part, when it comes time to perform, uh, you know that you're going to be able to make uh, consistent, very high-level decisions. Uh, and that's really what defines the best players in the world. Uh, and mentally speaking, that's, I think, what defines the best uh, as well.
0: Right. That's a lot of really great points. And, you know, my next question was going to be kind of have you describe from your experience like what separates the top you know one, couple of percent of successful poker players from everyone else but you already you, you kind of loosely said it and from my experience it's always been their level of confidence you can always tell when you're playing with someone who's on another level uh, i think part of that is because a lot of uh, what's correct or incorrect in poker is kind of a gray area. And I've always been kind of in awe of the guys who just play confidently all the time and they have an unorthodox style, but they seem to always just wreck people because they believe in, the, in themselves and their abilities. And I would assume there's actually a lot of similarities with that in golf. I mean, there's not just one type of golf swing. Uh, there's not just one type of approach that works. Would you agree?
1: Oh, absolutely. Not not only golf swing, but also you know how that uh, the the shape that they they hit the golf ball so some you know right to left left to right high low uh, you know you, you kind of have to I think really be solid on what you do really well and 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 make that uh, and do that the best that you possibly can uh, you know so uh, somebody who hits the ball you know in golf you know short uh, you know not not a very far hitter you know their strategy overall is going to be very different but if they go about it with uh, as you said, a a high level of confidence, uh, then there's, the success is going to follow, or at least they're going to put themselves in the, in the position to get the most out of their game. You know, it's, it's, it it is easy to get caught up in the gray area and wanting to be perfect, Mm -hmm. wanting to avoid mistakes, uh, uh, being unsure a little bit of what is right. Um, but the reality is like, you're always going to be unsure. There's always going to be gray areas. I mean, you know, Ivy had a, a really great, great quote, uh, that I actually reference in the second book uh, about mistakes and he's like I make mistakes all the time the difference between me and, and a lot of other people is that I continually are looking for them and continually trying to fix them he knows he's gonna make them so he goes in there with an extraordinary high level of confidence cuz he has a lot of skill to begin with but there's not there's not like uh... he, he doesn't believe he's a god he knows he's gonna make mistakes
0: that's very powerful stuff I was having a conversation with another player uh, a couple of weeks ago and he asked me my opinion if I thought poker was a sport and most people, you know, they kind of they have a different opinion on it, but uh, you know, whether or not you think that it's physically strenuous, I learned, I, I, I got a a strong opinion on that. When I went deep in the main event a couple of years ago, I got, Mm. I got 58th and I made it to day six. And you know, the first couple of days I had a lot of energy. Adrenaline was kind of carrying me through the days. But by the time the, you know, 12 hour days were piling on and I got to day six, I was so emotionally drained. Um, And I, you know, you're sitting in a chair and uh, for, for 12 hours a day, and things start to get a little bit strenuous, and I noticed that although the first five days I was on a huge high, I was feeling confident, and all everything was kind of going my way, well, when things started to sort of move the other way, and they weren't going my way, I started making poor decisions, I lost confidence, and I ended up busting the tournament, and if... Uh, I remember correctly you said that you know you were you were a very good collegiate golfer. because mm-hmm. I I listened to your uh Thinking Poker podcast I think yes, that yes, you did yes. last year. And you were talking about you had a you had a successful collegiate career but you you had difficulties kind of down the stretch in golf tournaments. So I wonder is if, if that's accurate. I think I remember it correctly. And it, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no no, I was going to say um yeah, I think there's so I guess there's sort of two things here. One is like is it a sport? Mm-hmm. Um and and then, you know, my my mental hang-ups were mostly to do with the uh the level of the of the competition. So, I won 9 tournaments in college. Mm-hmm. I was a three-time All-American. But playing in elite national events is where I would choke. So, it was like a big jump up from, you know, Division 3 golf to Division 1 and then Division 1 to Uh, the elite amateur events and there's not like there wasn't a lot of like middle range with some of these events like you kind of had like the smaller regional ones and then you had the big national ones and so it was just a big jump to to make and and that's really where i where i ended up struggling and it it, sort of hit home to me most when i was trying to qualify for the u.s open in 97 and i played phenomenally t to green but my weakest part of my game was my putting and that's where you know the pressure got exposed most and i ended up Three putting like four times, missing a couple short putts, and and then missed a playoff by a shot. Um, so I mean, I was I'm I'm like knocking on the doorstep. I have the technical skills, but uh, you know, pressure has a way to uh, sabotage your uh, your your weakest uh, spots.
0: Absolutely, and you know, I've taken a great interest in golf and kind of the psychology of golf in, in previous years. And I remember reading somewhere. I, th- I think the name of the book was uh, Zen Golf. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've probably heard of that book. Yeah, Dr. Parent. Yeah, exactly. Yep, and he was saying that the best golfers in the world, you know, everybody feels, when it's a big situation, all golfers feel the same amount of pressure. It's just a matter of how they use it. Some are kind of driven and uh, use that pressure to leverage them to play better, and others kind of buckle. So that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and I I actually would disagree with that. I mean, pressure is is very much a perception. You Mm -hmm. know, if, if you... Or, or anybody listening, were to suddenly start focusing on the feeling of your your ass in your seat, you know, if you and you keep forcing your attention to keep focusing on that, you're going to feel your your ass heavier in your chair than it was, you know, two you know thirty seconds ago before I had you pay attention to it. So so pressure is felt differently, in 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 some respects, based on the level of attention that you give to it, the meaning that you make from it what you think uh, it's gonna do to you so the the experience of pressure there's a great variety for it I don't think everybody experiences the same level of it
0: that's a good point yeah and I can I can definitely see that and do you think I mean just from your your experience coaching both golfers and poker players that I mean is there like a uh, one big problem that's kind of holding all players back or the majority of players back from achieving mental game success or
1: not understanding their weaknesses
0: not understanding their weaknesses, okay?
1: Yeah. If you don't know what your weaknesses are, they're going to hold you back, and you're not going to know that they're holding you back.
0: I see. So, would you recommend when players identify their biggest weakness that they mostly just focus on improving their biggest weakness?
1: Absolutely. Every single. I mean, your your number one priority. And I say you. I mean, everybody who's playing the game seriously. Your number one priority has to always be to be prepared to improve your weaknesses. Uh, your so your your greatest weakness. If you're not and it shows up, well what happens? You get better at it. Training training is not is never neutral. You're always either improving something or you're getting better at the bad thing. So if you go out there and you tilt your face off, well guess what? You just got better at tilting. So the next time around, what's more likely? It's more likely to happen again and for you to be just as good at it as you were the last time. And it's it's not often that people think about tilting as a skill, but it is. And and if you continue to tilt in the way that you do, you're just getting better and better at it. So proper preparation for correcting your tilt doesn't guarantee that it's going to be gone. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, You're trying to make minimal improvements to it, but when it shows up, you have to be better than you would have been you know, a, a day before, a week before, or a month ago, that's that is continual improvement. There's there's rarely instances where, you know, big mental game issues like like tilt are gone instantaneously. Sometimes people don't have big problems, uh, and and they just need some some of the right information, and something kind of clicks, and their tilt is gone. That's rare. It's like winning the tilt lottery. <laughs> you know, more likely you're going to have to work at it. Just like you were, you're going to, uh, if you're a a golfer, you're going to go bang balls in the driving range to fix your golf swing. Like you can't just go take a lesson one day and then expect to have your golf swing be perfect, you know, under all, uh, all, all situations, including some big stressful ones. So if you're, you know, if you're going out to the world series, your number one priority from this day until the point that you get out to Vegas is to really study and understand what your biggest weaknesses are and to develop a basic strategy for correcting it because it, it is going to show up at some point if you play enough events,
0: right? Just like losing is a habit, winning is kind of also a habit as well, and having good preparation. So it's important to set up good routines for yourself. I, I'm assuming that you would agree.
1: Oh yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So you know, typically, like, what have you found is like the biggest aha moment that your students realize after doing your coaching or or digging through your books or or doing any kind of work with you?
1: That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that there's any. One, uh, I think a lot of people. I get, a, I definitely get a lot of mileage out of talking about problems as being skills. You know, when when somebody comes to me and they're they're having trouble because they're procrastinating a lot or they're lazy, when they start to actually look at that problem as being a skill that they're really good at, all of a sudden there becomes more of a choice involved. Like they they start to see that there's there's something actively going on, kind of feeding that particular issue. Uh, if you 've ever seen the movie office space yeah uh, you know the main character who his goal is to do nothing mm-hmm. like he is not unmotivated like there's a misconception the guy's not lazy the guy is extraordinarily motivated to do nothing that's that's his motivation that 's his goal right so there's it's impossible to to be goalless it 's impossible not to have motivation uh, so Again, with, with, with laziness or, or uh, with tilt, with anxiety issues, when you start to see what you're doing is, is actually somewhat skill-based, uh, you can then better understand the flaws that exist within that skill and the things that actually need to be corrected. Um, that's one. I'd say another one is, is the concept of inchworm, which sounds funny. And if you're not familiar with these literally one-inch worms, um, they they move in a particular way that helps to mirror the learning process which based on our conversation today is fairly simple that when you improve your weaknesses you provide the opportunity for your your strengths to get even better that that your weaknesses and your and your and your and your strengths are actually tied to the same range you know just like there's there's variation in card distribution there's variation within your own performance so if you take a of your decision making over the last six months, you're going to see a bell curve. there's there's decisions that represent the absolute peak of your ability. There's you know solid b game, you know decent decisions. and then then there's your, there's your worst and and those b game decisions tend to be the 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 ones that happen most often. Uh, and then the two extremes, your best and your worst, happen the most infrequently. So in order to make consistent improvement, you have to be eliminating, the back end of your uh, of your performance, because basically everything that you're you're learning in the game, mentally technically, requires mental space. Like you have to have enough space in your mind to think about it. But what ends up happening to a lot of people is that they cram so much information in their head that they are that their their like range in a sense is so wide. Uh, that if anything goes wrong, they they have a little bit of frustration, they lose a little bit of, of motivation, they get a little tired at the end of day five, um, then their game dramatically slips because it it was taking so much energy to think through all of those things. But if you eliminate your some of your weaknesses, well then what you've done is taken something off the table, right? You don't have to think about it anymore. It's it's automatic. It's no longer part of your range, and that frees up mental space for you to either play your existing game quite a bit easier uh, or uh, for you to learn something new. And so that the, the idea that your strengths and weaknesses exist along the, the same continuum is another aha that I get frequently.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. I We've talked a lot about improving weaknesses and identifying weaknesses. And I was wondering, you know, if if we're talking about mental game, what do you do when or how, how, how do you recommend that people like um, keep track of their level of player do you give them a log for them when you know in between sessions to sort of monitor themselves and and, and observe their own tendencies?
1: Well I, I don't give them a log but I, I basically explain you know let's say if we're, we're dealing with a tilt problem that um, sometimes people are just really unaware like it, it takes them you know to be really pissed off before they even notice that they're angry now there were a lot of warning signs that would exist before then but their awareness is not strong enough to be able to see it. So in that case, you know, you want to start taking notes like at the moment that you've realized that you're really angry and try to think, you know, okay, what's gone on over the last 15, 20 minutes, half hour uh, that that kind of led to this point. So you can begin to create a pattern um, or recognition of that pattern uh, of escalation of tilt. Um, you know, that that's more of an extreme case, although when I say extreme I don't mean rare. It's really common. Uh, for those who who may tilt not nearly as severely, um, yeah, you want to take notes at the end of your session. You want to be essentially keeping eye out for the triggers, like the things that piss you off, like a a mistake uh, on your part, or even like sometimes players get pissed off when when regulars make a mistake and then it ends up costing them money. So mistakes can be one, bad beats can be another, uh, just losing a hand can be one. Uh, you know, maybe losing a hand against a particular type of player. Or a player that you have history with. Um, So you're looking for the things that piss you off. You're looking for the triggers. Then you're looking for the signs that you know that you're pissed off. It could be that you make decisions faster. uh, You start saying, like, fuck my life in your head. Or, (laughs) you know, like, the things that you're saying either out loud. uh, Or you end up, like, typing in chat. Uh, maybe uh, if, if there's some revenge tilt in there that you uh, start s- like kind of the the search and destroy for uh, the player that just hit and ran you and you're looking through the lobbies for him. Um, so you're basically looking for the signs. Um, and then a, a really key one you're looking for is is to identify the point at which uh, your emotional system has become so overactive that it's now actually affecting your ability to think clearly and make logical decisions. So, you know when 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 frustration is really low, really minimal, um you know it, it doesn't I'm not saying that you're you're playing bad at that point. You may not be playing your best, but it's it's not really affecting you that much. Like what are the signs that exist at that point? What are the triggers that create that? Then you go to like the next level. Now, you know, it's it has started to affect your play. So, what are the signs and and triggers that exist there? In essence, creating a pattern of the escalation of tilt so that, uh you can recognize when it's happening. If you can't if you cannot do that, then you have almost zero chance of actually controlling a tilt problem. And and the analogy that I would give here is that it's it's like you're erecting road signs uh and and particularly a road that leads to a a cliff without a bridge. Because that's essentially what a lot of poker players do is that they run their game off the road um and crash it. They bust bankrolls, they lose 10, 15, 20 buy-ins in a day. They just completely punt a big tournament uh, when, they, when they drive their game off the road. Now, this road is well-worn. The pattern is there, it exists. What your job is is to erect these road signs that, that alert you to danger so you can turn around, stop, or do something you know, to get back on the right road of, of playing well again.
0: Very, very powerful stuff. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. I, uh, you know, I I read a book recently and it sounds like you're talking a lot about the same stuff that was saying that the most important skill for a poker player to have is self-awareness and what you're talking about is really powerful in the way that you're you're basically telling people what to look for and how to monitor themselves uh, so that you know they they can improve and even have an idea of what's happening to them and i think that from my experience all the best players in the world always seem like they're paying attention to things that i didn't even know existed so mm. that's very 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 good stuff yeah point now i i want to move more into like preparation for uh, going to a tournament or playing a cash game. Uh, in the past, I've really benefited from having a pre-tournament routine. Uh, I never, I used to just sort of fire up some tables and play. And I think that a lot of weaker players do that. But I've since kind of tried to, you know, uh, get my brain warmed up by reading some hand histories, posting on forums, and then I actually write out an affirmation um, so that I can. You know create a positive mind state and then and, and go from there mm-hmm. so from your experience in both golf and poker like what's been an effective way for players to get themselves in the zone and more consistently uh play their a game
1: yeah that's that's a complex uh question partially because if it was simple i mean everybody would be doing it right, <laughs> right. so as far as preparation goes i think the number one priority you want to have cleared up is is that you've got clear goals Without clear goals, you know, you're you're just kind of um, throwing to chance the possibility of you having the right amount of energy because you cannot be in the zone if you don't have the right amount of energy. It's a it's a very delicate balance, and and you know, having really clear goals is is essential. Now, a lot of players will say, "Well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to have clear goals?" Well there's a a a little bit of a misnomer in poker that that it's bad to have results-oriented goals like wanting to win a tournament wanting to win you know a bracelet wanting to win x amount of money throughout the year like it's not bad it's it's essential you you want to have those kind of goals but you you can't only have them because you need to have goals that you have one hundred percent control of so you got the result goal and then you got the process goal Like the process is uh like what you're gonna do to actually give yourself a, a legitimate opportunity to win that tournament or win a bracelet. So you could set a goal for uh wanting to consistently play in the zone. Now again, that's a freaking challenge. So what 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 what, what are the things you're gonna do uh to help you to get there? Well, one example would be uh to better understand uh how what you eat, uh how you uh sleep and, and the level of exercise that you um, that you need in order to get yourself fresh, like you don't have to have like a ton of energy when you start. In fact, one of the biggest mistakes that players make when they go to the World Series is that they're actually too excited. Having too much excitement uh, shuts down higher brain function as much as tilt does. So you can play badly for a while just because you're too amped up. So feeling fresh, feeling ready, having that right amount of energy, like that's there's a little bit of a challenge figuring out. Ah, uh, what that formula is for you so so that is one thing that would lead to you trying to play in the zone more, which ultimately leads to you giving yourself the best opportunity to win. So you can see how like the result goal provides the context to figuring out exactly what you need to be doing uh, in order to get it and And that's I think again, like by far the biggest thing that needs to happen is just to really kind of lay out clearly uh, what your goals are,
0: right. Really good advice. Again, like I I think, you know, like you said, the importance of having process goals, I found that to be very helpful for me as well. Um, You know, a lot of people just say, well, I want to win more money. But what does that really mean? What activities do do you need to do every day in order to help you play or like improve your skills? Can you, is that like spending an hour a day watching videos? You know, what, what, what can you do to increase your confidence and actually sharpen your, your real skills at the tables? That's very good advice. Exactly. So I think it was last year, uh, I read an article from you, I I believe it was like in Bluff or Card Player or something like that, where you were talking, maybe it was Poker News, um, where I read an article where you were talking about preparing for the World Series. uh, Mm -hmm. And and I learned a lot from it. And, you know, to wrap up this interview, I was wondering if you could spend a couple of minutes sort of highlighting what you think are the important things for preparing specifically for the World Series, um, you know, to ensure that people can give themselves the best shot at getting a big score this summer.
1: Yeah, I think you want to you want to go in with a game plan for just kind of like the overall strategy for the summer. I mean, burnout is a huge problem, and I think it's a mistake to go in thinking that you're going to play every event. Um, you know, like, there's some of the top players, some of the sponsored players who do it, and and they have the freedom to do that. Um, I don't think it's a it's a wise strategy, even sometimes for them in terms of optimal performance. They may have you know EV decisions of why they do it, but you know if you're talking about um, like playing at a high level consistently, you want to just kind of go in with a game plan. If you're going to play like a mixture of cash games and tournaments, you know, make sure that you 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 sort of space things out enough so that you give yourself the opportunity to to stay sharp throughout the event. Uh, especially if the if the main event is a priority for you, you know, six weeks in Vegas in the summer, I mean, there's just something about being in Vegas that is draining. I mean, you just you're just being you just showing up there. Uh, all of a sudden, like the energy is beginning to get sucked out of you. It's like Vegas is like a vampire. Um like the constant drumbeat of like going out. It's like it's it's incessant. There's just always action and you're you it's really hard to shut off and, and, and be able to relax. And so having a game plan is is an important one. Um I'd say having a clear understanding of your weaknesses is another one just to just to mention it again. Um so you're prepared to make sure those are uh those are corrected. Um this may sound a little strange, but but dreaming too much is actually a big problem. Like it's great to envision yourself uh, winning a bracelet, but if you start to feel real emotion about like what it would be like if you did, then strangely enough, you can you can become a little bit demotivated uh, to actually do all the work necessary to sort of stay in uh, and 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 play well uh, throughout because your mind can kind of trick you into thinking that it's already yours. Like subtly, you believe that it's already yours. And so you you kind of lose a little bit of your edge. I'm not saying that you play terribly, but if you if you're playing like 10% worse, that's a big amount, especially uh, in situations where all of a sudden maybe you you, you could have picked up on a tell, uh, you could have uh, let's say uh, value betted you know slightly with a, with a slightly better bet sizing that would have you know put push somebody off a of hand. Like there's just subtle subtle. Um, uh, things can make a big difference sometimes, especially in these in these big events. Um, so, dreaming and and focusing kind of too much on on the end can also make it more likely that as you get deep into a tournament, you start focusing more on the money. Now, it's fine to think strategically about kind of where you stand, um, and and in relation to kind of some of your decision making based on you know let's say there's a big pay jump at uh, you know twentieth place or something. That's fine that's strategic but starting to think about what you would do with the money or what the money would mean to you uh, or you know what you're going to say on twitter or who you're going to talk to who your first phone call is going to be that stuff is is just like mental masturbation it's just it does absolutely nothing other than make you feel good and make you play worse so you got to really work hard to to continue to focus on the details of the action that's in front of you so you can make really good decisions and and i think if you if you're dreaming too much before you get there uh then it can sort of lead into uh to dreaming too much in in situations where you don't want it to
0: yeah i think that's really good i especially like what you said about being burnt out it's funny because it seems you know i've spent a lot of time i've even lived in vegas and vegas can definitely burn you out especially you know world series time is very stressful there can be big swings depending on what stakes you're playing and there is a lot of potential to do something big and sometimes if things don't go your way and it seems like everybody around you is having success it can make you feel pretty down in the dumps and it seems like every year i always show up in the beginning and i'm really happy to uh you know play in the first couple of tourneys Um, you know, you know, I'm always just really focused in the first couple of tourneys, but then by the time I, I bust the main event, whenever that might be, I'm like, get me the hell out of (laughs) Vegas. I don't even know if I'm going to play the series next year. This is like, I I can't get out of here fast enough. Um, but you know, of course I always end up coming back. And by the time, uh, March and April roll around, I'm like, Ooh, baby, I can't wait to go play again. This is going to be so fun. Uh, speaking of which, you know, like, uh, the last thing I want to ask you is what's your favorite memory of the world series and what are you looking forward to most this year? I'm assuming, you know, you might, I don't, I don't you're not going to go out and like grind the series or anything, but maybe it, I, I don't know what your plans are, but if you've made it out there in the past or, or what you're looking forward to this year.
1: Yeah, I uh I've I've gone every year for the last 6 years and I will not be there this year because my wife and I are due with our first child uh the yeah. end of end of June. Thank you. Uh yeah, so we're we're uh we're expecting a baby girl and I'm not going to risk being out there. Um you know, uh, I do a lot of a, a lot of client work when I'm out there, but the good thing is that it's 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 easy to still do it remotely. Um, so you know, whenever she decides to join us, um, you know, I'll, I'll probably take a couple of days off. Uh, but you know the um, you know, and then work with uh, clients, however, however I uh, need to. But um, yeah, am um, It's 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 on some level, but bittersweet. On another level, not at all. Um, I mean, I like being out there. It's the, the World Series is always a, always a good time. Um, I'd say uh, one of my favorite memories was um, well. Okay. I actually wasn't there for them, but I've had uh, three clients win bracelets, uh, which is which is really cool. Um, and I'd say the coolest thing that I actually witnessed was uh, was the bubble bursting for uh, for the final table. I I generally don't stay that late. In fact, I I won't again unless I've got a client there, just because there's just sort of nothing left. There's like 15 people, um, you know, not literally because there's all the other people watching, but uh, there's just not a whole lot going on. It's like it's kind of like a ghost town down at the Rio then, but. It just—it was just really cool to watch all the players who and and just how excited they were, uh, making the final title, uh, the uh, the November nine. So, um, yeah, I'd say that was probably my my fondest memory, other than you know all the fun that is had. You know, uh, which I can't really go into.
0: <laughs> For sure. I mean, you know, it's a special time when the final table burst. You're like, wow, all these guys just won a lot of money. And all of the people that bought pieces of them are, you yep. know, you think about all the uh, so simultaneous celebration that's happening in that moment. It is really fun.
1: <laughs> well, exactly.
0: Thank you very, very much. I know that you're a busy man. So I'm, I'm very grateful that you took the time to join us and share all that knowledge with us. Uh, Absolutely, done. everybody that again you know I highly recommend you check out Jared's books Jared's website and if you can you know hit him up for personal lessons because he really is the best in the business and uh, check out our future podcasts and rewind and listen to again just to get all, of the, nu- all of the nuggets from this
1: Awesome. Well, John, I appreciate it, man, and uh, I'll just let everybody know, too, that uh, I I do have an audio book through Amazon and Audible uh, that you can actually get for free, Uh, so you can go to jaredtundlerpokercom backslash free, uh, and there's information on how to get it.
0: Yes, go check it out. Thanks
1: again, Jared. Good luck, guys.